Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. This week I was in Los Angeles. I uh, am away once a month for my doctoral program, and um, so I'm on a different time zone right now. And uh, I, uh, the, the feelings of being fresh from an airport at, a, at an airplane are still with me, so I don't really know what state I feel like I'm in right now. But nevertheless, it's good to be with you, good to be with my family. But I want to begin by asking you if there's something that you've noticed. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our culture especially is consumed with health and fitness and wellness. Have you noticed that? Consumed, I mean obsessed with health and wellness. I mean, it's everywhere. Diets and drugs and daily exercise. The the collective subconscious of our culture is this deep-seated preoccupation with health and wellness and image and personal quality of life. I mean, have have you noticed this? And have you noticed also that the American dream is no longer just about the house with a white picket fence, but now the American dream is, are those things and a newer, healthier, thinner version of you. You see, what we're being told, rather what we're being sold into the trillions of dollars every single year is that the meaning of life, the secret to our happiness, that when we'll really be happy is that when we can finally be satisfied with what we see in the mirror. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. Being healthy is fantastic. Diets are, are good. And, and, and it's just that America has a voracious appetite for diets. Diet drugs, diet books, diet plans, diet fads. When one diet dies, another one like the phoenix rises to take its place. I mean, you have to understand, being healthy now isn't just a good idea, now it's, now it's a religion. And it's the fastest growing religion in America, I'll have you know. We have food cults, fitness Bibles, exercise temples, AKA workout gyms, modern shrines devoted to the perfection of the human body where we try to become the fitness gods. I mean, it's just everywhere. And you might be thinking, Joe, <laughs> What does any of this have to do with the church or with Christianity? Well, my point is very simply this. 21st century America might be the most health conscious it has ever been, but at the exact same time, it is the most spiritually malnourished it has ever been. How do I know that? The garbage that sells. The, the, the books on spiritual formation and enrichment alone that people buy off the shelves are indicative enough, are indicative alone of the spiritual appetite of the church. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Heaven is for Real, The Shack, Jesus Calling, The Prayer of Jabez. Good night. This stuff isn't even just spiritual junk food. This is spiritual poison. We are a spiritually flabby and malnourished people here in America. And yet... I have not come this morning merely to complain, but to bring the cure. And the cure, or whether I should say the diet of the church, that what the church needs to be a healthy church that changes the world, you know exactly what I'm going to say, what the church needs is truth. Scripture. Doctrine from the pages of Holy Scripture. You see, when a church is taken captive, 
When a church is arrested, when a church is gripped, when a church is overwhelmed by a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe, that is a church that will cause ripple effects into eternity. And how I know that is because that's exactly what we see in Titus chapter 3. And by now you well know that the whole reason why Titus is in your Bibles is because what it is is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, everything you've ever dreamed or imagined this church could be, everything you've ever wanted this church and your wildest imaginations, I just want you to know you can have that. You can have it all. It is literally there for the taking. But what you need at minimum are the essential components found in Paul's letter to Titus first. See, but how you get there, how a church even begins to be healthy is if that church is a hungry church. Not for cake and ice cream, but for the fine cuisine of Holy Scripture. See, there's not another way when you have a congregation that hungers for the high-calorie theology from the pages of Holy Scripture, that is a healthy church that changes the world. That's how church health even begins. Put it this way, the difference between a healthy church and a sickly church is that the healthy church is always asking the question, what does the text say? Because that's the thing about the church. What it is kind of funny to put it this way, but what it is is a cosmic health club of spiritual fitness. We body build disciples with the word of God to go back out there and fight in the trenches of the great commission. And we are a church, are we not? And if we're going to be and do what churches are called to be and do, we had better be healthy. And so to prepare you for the fitness plan of the Apostle Paul, I've got a few questions for you. A little cheeky, a little cheesy, but here they are. If you want this church to be healthy, and you want this church to make a splash for eternity, to advance the Great Commission, are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing and ready to get in shape Spiritually speaking, are you ready for the fitness plan of the Apostle Paul? Because the health club is the church, doctrine is the diet, serving one another is the exercise, and our personal fitness trainer is the Apostle Paul, and he's going to show us exactly what church health looks like in Titus 3, verses 8 through 15. So look again at the text. And here's where we're going this morning. This morning, I want you to see, and notice very carefully the progression of language here. I want you to see from our text three expressions. Three expressions of spiritual fitness produced in the church when that church treasures the salvation they have in Christ. The wording is a little tricky, but, but notice the progression. Three expressions of spiritual fitness produced in the church when that church treasures the salvation they have in Christ. Three expressions. Here we go. Expression number one. The first expression of spiritual fitness is first when a church radically pursues profit. When a church radically pursues profit. Where I get that from is at the end of verse eight when Paul says these things are profitable for people. But they see that that's the thing. See, what you have to understand, get this now, 
Look at me. There is a direct connection between how much you love your salvation and how well you serve other people. The more staggered we are by the salvation realities we have in Christ, the more we will serve and love one another in this church. Put it this way, the more theological fuel there is in the furnace of your soul, the more the fires of affection will burn for other people in this church. How do I know that? I know that because that's exactly what Paul told us. Look at verse 8. He says, this is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to insist, Titus, so that those who have trusted in God should carefully consider to devote themselves to good works. These things are good and profitable for people. Now, you see it in the text, right? You see what it is that Paul says, as believers, we are to be devoted to, what did he say? to good works. And by that he meant to one another, for one another. We are to devote our lives to giving and serving one another with radical love and affection. Get this, there should not be one unmet need in the church, not a single one. We should be always hungry hawks, always perched, always on the hunt, always looking for opportunities to serve and love one another. That's what Paul says, isn't it? Devoted to good works. Because at the end of the day, the health of any church is not found primarily in its programs, but in its commitment of each member to make the spiritual growth of the other their top priority. But you see, the problem is we're busy, we're, we're tired, we're exhausted, we've got a lot of stuff to do, we've got our own burdens, our own concerns, our own anxieties, our own cares, we've got a lot of stuff on our plate, not to mention that we're kind of selfish naturally, how can we possibly think about devoting ourselves to good works for one another? I can barely take care of myself, how are we going to get the power and the motivation to devote ourselves to good works? Where does the power to do that even come from? Paul just told you. He just told you. Look, look again at, at, at what he says. He, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. Now, now, what does he mean? I'm going somewhere with this. What is he saying? What is the trustworthy saying? What, 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 is the, what saying is he even talking about? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about what he just said in verses 4 through 7. And what he just said in verses 4 through 7 is only one of the greatest salvation confessions in history. In other words, in verses 4 through 7, Paul takes the fireworks display of our salvation in Christ and then he lights the fuse. Look what he says. But when God, our Savior's kindness and love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not from works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. 
through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we should be made heirs of eternal life. That is massive. Do do you see that? In verses four through seven, what did Paul just do? What did he do? He just unloaded the salvation riches that we have in Christ. He just clobbered us with all that God did in Christ to save us from eternal woe and despair. Guess what? That is the trustworthy saying. That's the saying that Paul is referring to in verse eight. But notice, notice what it says. Look at the text. Here's the connection. Titus, everything I just told you in verses four through seven, that is the trustworthy saying. And here it is. Concerning these things, I want you to insist. Now think about it. Think about it. What does he mean? What does he mean? What are the these things he wants Titus to insist upon? What are they? It's everything he just talked about in verses four through seven. Titus, I want you to tell your people again and again and again and again, and I don't want you to stop telling them about the salvation riches they have in Christ. Titus, your job is not to entertain them. It's not to amuse them. It's not to make them like you. It's not to make them feel better about themselves. It's not to boost their self-esteem. Titus, your job is to give them Christ. Every sermon, every Sunday, you hold up Jesus Christ as a treasure of infinite value. Insist on telling them, Titus, about everything Christ accomplished which so reminds me of the painting, maybe you've seen it, of Martin Luther, the German reformer. The painting is of inside his church. The pulpit is on one side, his congregation is on the other, and here is Luther preaching in the pulpit, Bible open, open, proclaiming the truth to his people, and his finger is pointing to the middle of the room where Jesus Christ hangs there, crucified. See, the point of the painting is this. Luther preached Christ. And it defined the entirety of his ministry. That kind of preaching is what the entire Reformation depended on. That's what Paul is talking about. Titus, insist on telling them. Insist on telling them. Don't let them never not hear. I don't know if those double negatives work. Continually tell them about the, about the redemptive achievements they have in Christ. Which means, which means, get this now, if the Apostle Paul all of a sudden walked in this room, and he got up on stage and he excused me from the room and he had Charles close the door and then he began asking you questions. And if he began to ask you questions like this, church, what do you hear Jared talking about? Does he, does he preach the unfathomable riches of Christ to you? Does he proclaim to you the treasures of eternal salvation? Does he proclaim to you who Christ is and what he accomplished and why it matters for your lives? What would you say to him? 
What is my theological report card to the Apostle Paul? You see, what Paul just did, you, did for you is that he gave you a benchmark not only to evaluate this pastor, but all pastors. Because whether you know it or not, when you hire a pastor, you are hiring him to insist on telling you the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ. But, but here's the thing, doesn't that potentially lead to an objection? I mean, I can imagine, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I, I have a point that I'm going to make here. I haven't made it yet, so hang on. This could lead to a possible objection because the more practically minded person, the person who prides themselves on being more practically minded, they could probably say, so, so how is that practical? I mean, to, 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 own, to continually and, and exclusively tell people about theology and about salvation, about the salvation riches they have in Christ, is that practical? I mean, if you're continually telling people about salvation and theology, you're going to make this church bookish and cold and intellectual and unfriendly. I got news for you. Get practical, guy. And yet, and yet, that's not really how the Apostle Paul felt. Because look what he says. Look what he says is the intended result of that kind of preaching. Look at verse 8. Here's my punchline. Insist on telling them, Titus, about the staggering salvation riches they have in Christ. Why? So that those who trust in God should carefully consider how to devote their lives to good works. There's my punchline. Do you see the connection? The result of preaching the unfathomable riches in Christ. What did Paul say? What happens to a church when you feed them Sunday after Sunday with the redemptive accomplishments of Jesus Christ? What happens? What happens is they begin to serve one another. What happens is they begin to love one another. What happens is they begin to devote their lives to one another. Isn't that what Paul just said? Titus, insist on telling them about the salvation they have in Christ so that those who trust in God will carefully consider how to devote their lives to good works. Do you see the connection? The connection is this. There is a direct connection between how much we love our salvation and how well we serve other people. The more staggered we are by the salvation riches we have in Christ, the more we will love and serve one another in the church. That is theological science. That is a fact. And that's why preaching on Christ is so unbelievably practical. Don't you see? Radical love that changes the world is a chain reaction in the soul produced by truth. And in particular, the truth about salvation question is, do you know? Do you ponder? Do you think about? Do you, as they say, count your blessings? And by that I mean, do you count your salvation blessings in Christ? In Christ, I am born again. In Christ, I am forgiven. In Christ, I am not guilty. In Christ, I am reconciled to the Father. 
In Christ, the wrath of God has been canceled. In Christ, I am adopted as a son. In Christ, I have eternal life. In Christ, I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, I have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Do you count your salvation blessings in Christ? Do they blow your mind? Because if they do, then, then you will have the power to love other people. That's the connection that Paul makes. Don't you see? Real church is not a Sunday only thing. No, a healthy church is made up of a thousand interactions a week where the people in that church carefully consider how to devote their lives to good works for one another. So here's the question. When you think about Christ and you think about everything that he accomplished, what what good works does that motivate in your soul? When you think about the glory and the beauty and the redemptive achievements of Jesus Christ, what does that fire up in your soul that you want to do in ministry for the local church? Start an evangelism ministry? You should do that. Teach a Bible or theology class at this church? You should totally do that. You like art or graphic design? Do it for ministry. Serve in hospitality? Help Sunday mornings be incredible for newcomers? Help start a college ministry? Why not? We need all those things. A visitation ministry? Start a task force where we bring meals to needy people in the church? You should do all those things. I don't care what it is. But according to the Apostle Paul, we are to devote our lives to good works for one another and what produces the power to be inspired, motivated to do those things is the salvation riches we have in Christ. And that's the first expression of spiritual health. Which brings us to the second expression of spiritual fitness. Number two, the church urgently refuses the plague. (laughs) The church urgently refuses the plague. Because I'm sure, I'm sure it would come as no surprise to you that the church, like a human body, has an immune system. In other words, the church has its own defense system against viruses and diseases and germs and infections and bacteria and other invaders that could potentially threaten the health of the church. And I'm sure, I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you that the immune system which protects the the, the body of Christ is nothing less than the doctrines found in the pages of scripture. That is the immune system of the church. In other words, get this now, the more a church body prizes and loves and treasures and ponders and thinks about the kinds of salvation realities in verses four through seven, for instance, the more healthy and unified that church will become. Mark my words. Let's put it this way. If we're captivated by the right things, we will not be distracted by the wrong things. If our heads are filled with treasure, we will not waste our time thinking about trash. If we are fascinated with Christ and everything that he accomplished, that is the firewall that protects the church from petty debates and things which have no value. And speaking of things which have no value that threaten the health of the church, that's exactly where Paul goes in verse nine. Look at the text. 
He says, but Titus, be avoiding, be refusing foolish debates, genealogies, divisions, and quarrels about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and useless. Do you see what he does there? He gives Titus four things to avoid like the plague and in so doing helps that congregation be a healthy church that changes the world. And what you have to understand here, this is very crucial for you to get, what you have to understand about each of the four dangers that Paul says to avoid, each one of those things has a distinctly Jewish flavor. A distinctly Jewish flavor. Because you know, you remember from Rich's sermon that there was a pretty well-established community of Jews on the island and they were less than thrilled about the invasion of Christianity. And some from this Jewish community took upon themselves to infiltrate and, and influence these young, impressionable believers who were still pretty wet cement theologically and they began to try to influence them with all sorts of things that sounded really good on the surface. Interesting, fascinating, tantalizing little treats that tickled their imagination, but in the end was nothing more than spiritual poison with a candy coating. So let's look at the four plagues, the four plagues that Paul tells Titus and us to avoid. Haha, <laughs> well, like the plague. Plague number one Paul says to avoid foolish debates, literally, moronic debates, <laughs> stupid debates. And right away, right away, shame on you if you did, right away, people think Calvinism versus Arminianism, stupid debate. People think this view of the end times versus that view of the end times. A literal physical kingdom versus a spiritual kingdom. That, those are foolish debates. And yet that's not what Paul's thinking about at all. Because guess what? Those issues really matter. And they're in the Bible. So that, that's not what Paul's thinking about at all. Those are worth talking about. Rather, what he's talking about here are weird, petty detours outside the pages of Scripture. Because you remember, don't you, back in chapter 1 when Paul talked about these Jewish antagonists bringing their teaching for shameful gain, upsetting entire families? Do, do you remember what Paul said about them? He said they were empty talkers and deceivers. He said that they came to the church armed to the teeth with, I quote, Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Do you hear that? Things outside the pages of Scripture. You see, in Paul's day and today, Judaism is buried under the tonnage of centuries of traditions and additions that have accumulated over the centuries, most of it rooted in nothing but speculation and folklore. That the kinds of debates that Paul's talking about are these stories and legends and food laws and extra Sabbath rules and nitpicky hypothetical arguments about hair-splitting issues that the Bible doesn't even care about. That's what Paul means by foolish debates. So, for instance, for our context, our day, electric guitars or drums in church, you can have your feelings about that, but if you're going to get angry about it, that's a foolish debate. Using the King James only version, you can have your preference, but if you're going to start dividing people over that, that's a foolish debate. And that is good for no one. So, so the application to this is really, really simple. If it's not in the text, 
and yet you're willing to fight about it and you're willing to draw lines in the sand over it. That is the essence of a foolish debate. In other words, when opinions and preferences and traditions outside the Bible get exalted to the status as being as sacred as the Bible, that is the essence of a foolish debate. And so the question is, do you have anything like that in your life? Some social, political, cultural hot-button issue that consumes your thoughts? Let's get this way. Be honest now. What is the most passionate issue over which you take a stand? Be honest. The thing that really gets you fired up? The thing that you talk about the most? The thing that you would defend with a passion of a pit bull? What is that thing? The question is, can you defend that view with one single Bible verse not taken out of context? Because if not, that could easily become a foolish debate, and that is not good for the church. Brings us to plague number two. Look what Paul says. He says, Titus, avoid foolish debates. And not only that, <laughs> but avoid genealogies. Stop arguing about genealogies. When is the last time you have ever done that? You've never done that. Rich maybe has done that, but, but, but no one has ever done that. But, but these Jews did this. These Jews argued about genealogies. And you see, what they did is that they, they, caused, they brought these debates to these young believers. And these young believers were, were, who were impressionable were bringing these things inside the church. Because here's the thing. Genealogies, they, they were kind of a Jewish thing, weren't they? They were. In fact, rightly and appropriately, genealogies were a big deal to Jews. You know why? Because they're actually in the Bible. And believe it or not, genealogies are actually profoundly important and theological. They're not just these irrelevant, boring lists. No, they actually have value. They have theological import. They are really actually kind of a big deal. You know why? Because the whole point of a genealogy is to connect the entirety of the plan of salvation to literal people in actual history leading up to and culminating in the Messiah himself. So genealogies, kind of a big deal. However... However, what the Jews began to do, even centuries before Christ showed up, what they began to do is they began to take the names in those genealogies and add names to the list, probably fictitious, and around those names began to construct entire theologies and construct these fictional tales and pass them off as authentic. In other words, they used genealogies as a Trojan horse as a mechanism to inject and insert all sorts of mystical man-centered theology that sounded super enticing and really incredible on the surface, but in the end was nothing more than spiritual poison that pulled you away from sound doctrine. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. The genealogists are still among us fabricating history, telling an interesting story, inserting some theology. This is everywhere. For instance, in a 2014 book called The Circle Maker, the author uses this, tells the story of this Jewish legend, of this first century Jewish scholar who, who is what the, book, the, the story is about. This, this first century Jewish scholar supposedly drew a circle in the sand during a drought and he stood in the middle of the circle and he demanded, he told God that he was not going to leave the circle until God made it rain. That's the story. 
And the whole premise of the book, get this, the whole premise of the book is that based on that event, probably fictitious, but the author passes it off as historical, the whole premise of the book is that we should also draw metaphorical lines around the things we want in life and demand that God will give them to us. The whole premise of the book is, and I quote, it will show you how to claim God-given promises and pursue God-sized dreams and seize God-ordained opportunities. You'll learn, you'll learn how to draw prayer circles around your family, your job, your problems, and your goals. That is precisely the kind of trash Paul's talking about. Or, this might hit close to home, take the famous prayer of Jabez a book that constructs an entire theology, ironically enough, out of one verse in a genealogy in 1 Chronicles. And it injects so much outside stuff into that verse that, that it makes it sound like that if we pray the prayer of Jabez, God will grant us our deepest longings. The book is filled. It is filled with all sorts of fabricated, fictitious, historical details passed off as God's blessing to give you material blessing. It's a hoax. It's a total hoax only designed to appeal to our fleshly greed. I'm not saying there's nothing right in the book. I'm saying it is poison mixed with truth. And that makes it even more dangerous. And the worst culp culprit of all would be, of course, the Jesus calling, followed closely by the boy who came back from heaven, who the boy that the story is about came back and said the whole thing was a lie, by the way. Heaven is for real or 23 minutes in hell. Th these are books that are fiction, but they're passed off as biblical fact. And all they do is pull you away from truth and sound doctrine. See, see, don't you see the, the cure, let's call it the preventative medicine that, that keeps us from getting all tangled up in theological scams like these? The preventative medicine is to have our souls, get this now, staggered by the salvation riches we have in Christ. That's why we're committed to expository, verse-by-verse -verse preaching from the Bible. That's why we sell theologically nutritious, Christ-exalting books so that you can have something to feed your soul. That's why we are offering equipping classes in the fall so that we can help you be a discerning people with a refined taste for the fine cuisine of Holy Scripture. Because that Scripture, doctrine, is the immune system of the local church. Plague number three. Looking at verse 9, Paul tells Titus to tell his people to avoid foolish debates and genealogies, and here it is, to avoid divisions. To avoid divisions. And what he means is not discussions about or, or even disagreements over theology, because disagreement and, and division are not the same thing. Rather, what he means is, get this now, what he means is overly strong attitudes and preferences about issues that unnecessarily divide people. It could be theology. It could be theology, of course, but most of the time, get this now, most of the time, what divides people is not theology, but it is opinion and preference. For instance, vaccinations for or against. Homeschool, public school, for or against. Hymns only, for or against. Illegal immigration, for or against. Do you see? All valid issues. 
All issues that you have every right to have an opinion about, even a very strong opinion if you wish, but we have to be super, super careful that we don't begin to use these things as a benchmark to critique the spiritual maturity of others. You see, that's where we get into trouble. Those are the kinds of things, important though they may be, that are the perfect opportunity to unnecessarily cause division in the church. And so can you guess, can you guess, in the cosmic health club of the church, what is the preventative medicine to unnecessary division? What do you think it is? It is to be staggered by the salvation riches that we have in Christ. We have to learn how to major on the majors and the minor on the minors. And the major above all other majors is all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished. Don't you see? Christ, Christ and all that he is, is the gravitational center that holds us together despite our many differences of opinion and preference and convictions. Which brings us to plague number four. Lots of plagues to avoid, but last on the list, Paul says that Titus is to help his people avoid quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the law. Not the law of America, but the law of Moses. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And, and the issue here, what's going on here, is not necessarily the interpretation of those books, but the application of those books. And, and I should say more accurately, the over or hyper application of those books. Here's what I mean. The, for, for centuries, the rabbis and the scribes had these debates about what was lawful, what was okay to do on the Sabbath. To the degree that you almost couldn't even function like a human being on the Sabbath anymore. Like you could sneeze on the Sabbath, but you couldn't blow your nose because that would have constituted work. Like, you can eat an egg on the Sabbath so long as it wasn't hatched on the Sabbath. Do you see what I mean? I mean it's just crazy. And, and they were trying to apply it, and they got down to the meticulous, granular level of, of life. It's like you couldn't do anything without breaking the Sabbath. See, what he means is extreme, over-the-top, excessive applications to a biblical text that the text doesn't actually demand. Do you see what I mean? For instance... We read in James 1.27, keep yourselves unstained by the world. And some people take that to mean, well, then you shouldn't watch movies because those are made by people from the world. And you shouldn't listen to secular music because that's made by non-Christians. And, and you shouldn't go to Starbucks because they openly support homosexuality. That's keeping yourself unstained by the world, some will say. And, and maybe you shouldn't watch movies personally. Maybe personally you shouldn't listen to, to secular music. And if it violates your conscience to go to Starbucks, don't go to Starbucks. But that's not what the text demands, and you shouldn't hold other people to that standard either. See, that, that's what Paul's talking about. And so, broken record, I know, but it needs to be said. What is it? that keeps the church from unnecessary division. You know what it is. It is all that Christ is, and it's all that Christ accomplished. 
when we are staggered by the salvation riches we have in Jesus Christ, that is the weapon, that is the, that is the shield that prevents us from unnecessary division in the local church. You see, when churches get cold and private and harsh and suspicious and self-righteous and heavy-handed and they feel like they have to hide what's really going on because they know people are just gonna crush them if they're honest, when a church gets to that point, it is simply because they have not heard enough about the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's why. Because when we allow those other things like these plagues to get inside the church, Paul says they are unprofitable and useless. So churches must avoid the plague of bad theology, which brings us finally to the third expression of spiritual fitness. The third expression of spiritual fitness, number three, the church quickly removes the poison. The church quickly removes the poison. And by that I mean, Paul means people. You gotta remove sometimes people, poisonous people from the church. That's what Paul says, to remove poisonous people from the church, to excommunicate them, to remove them from the fellowship to kick them out of the church, to not even allow them to step foot in the door. And that's crazy, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, that's crazy. The, the whole concept of, remo- of excommunication, removing people from the church, that sounds super harsh and judgy, doesn't it? I mean, how could he even claim to be a Christian and, and believe that? And yet, and yet, although lots of churches have done this in the wrong way, for the wrong reasons, wrong way, wrong reasons, for which they will be held accountable by King Jesus. That is exactly what Paul tells churches to do. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, remove, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. Why? Because you know that such a person is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And now I know your version probably says something like have nothing to do with, but having nothing to do with a divisive person, but to reject a divisive person and have nof- nothing to do with them, same diff. It means the exact same thing. He means remove them from your church. He means do not allow them to participate. He means, he means you don't allow them to have influence unless they repent. You don't even allow them to enter the room. That's what he's talking about. And, and two things should come to mind here. We hear this and we, just, we need to do some pre-thinking here. Two things should come to mind here to give us perspective. One, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul talks about excommunication, should it? Because this isn't the first time the Bible talks about it. We read throughout the, the law of Moses, various reasons why people would be rejected from the community of Israel. And we read those reasons and we go, hmm, seems pretty valid. And we don't think anything about it. Christ himself in Matthew 18 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 gave really clear instructions of when and why and how and who should be removed from from the fellowship. So this, this right here, this is nothing new. But the second thing is, it makes total sense, doesn't it? That circumstances might arise however heartbreaking though those circumstances may be, that you have to remove someone from the local church. Companies fire toxic and lazy people all the time, and we don't bat an eye. 
Authorities remove criminals off the street to protect, to protect them from us all the time. And we nod our heads in approval. The church is the most precious and sacred entity on the face of the planet. It is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ. It is the stage upon which the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed to the world. And so it only makes sense that unfortunate and painful measures would have to be taken to carefully to, taken, uh, to prevent someone from hurting the local church. That's how important and sacred the church is. Because again, we will gladly and happily do whatever it takes to remove toxins and poisons from our own body, won't we? But churches are hesitant and they're fearful to remove toxic and poisonous people from their bodies because they don't know what to do. Well, to our great relief, Paul has told us exactly what to do. And there are three questions that the text answers that explains that we've got to get to the bottom of because although I pray it would never happen to us, should it happen to us? And again, I pray that it never does, but should it happen, we need to know what to do. Paul tells us, question one, who needs to be excommunicated? Who needs to be excommunicated? Look at verse 10. He says, reject a divisive person. Reject a divisive person. Again, I really hope you see, I'm, I'm eager, I'm anxious in my soul for you to understand that this is not some petty, revenge-driven kind of power struggle thing where the pastor you know, kicks out people who disagree with him or threaten his power. Not at all. Not at all. What this is, is removing poison from the body. So picture, this is the person who stands up in the middle of a meeting and he tries to, and he kind of takes over control, takes the controls of the meeting, and he tries to force the church to go his way using ultimatums and threats. That's who Paul's talking about. This is the person who wolf-like, behind the scenes, quietly poisons the sheep against the shepherds or poisons sheep against other sheep. They make little comments. They sow seeds of doubt. They have secret conversations out of concern but really all they do is they slander and gossip and cause fissures in the body. That's a divisive person. That's the who. Which brings us to question two. When does a divisive person need to be excommunicated? When does a divisive person need to be excommunicated? When do they need to be asked to, to leave the church? Well, Paul tells us exactly why in verse 10. Look what he says. He says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. That's the when. And that word warning there, that literally means a rebuke. It's a sharp correction. Not mean and nasty, but blood earnest and firm like a father. An elder, an elder talks to a divisive person and he says, look, look, I understand you have concerns. But... There are ways of handling disagreement and concern in the church, and your slander is not one of them. So from here on out, for the good of the church, for the health of the church, for the good of our sheep, and the reputation of this church, out of love for you, we implore you to talk to leadership directly about your concerns, or not at all. That's strike one. 
But if that person continues to be divisive and they continue to spread gossip and slander and, and cause havoc in the church, you have one more of those conversations with them and you make it really clear to them and you say, look, look, you don't seem to understand just how toxic your divisiveness is to the entirety of the Great Commission. We love you and we want you to be a contributing, thriving member of this local church. We really want you to be here. We want you to join us and be with us and help this church be better. We're not saying you don't have some good insights. We're just saying there is a way to handle those. We're telling you, we're telling you, for the good of the reputation of Christ and for this church. You need to repent because if you don't, we're going to have to ask you to leave. That's strike two. And if it doesn't stop there, they're gone. They're gone. Isn't that what Paul just said? I, just so you know, I don't wake up every morning and go, I hope I get to teach on excommunication. Wow, I just, that's, that's not the top of my dessert list to like preach. I would never choose to preach this. It's in the text. I just report the facts. <laughs> but that's what Paul just said. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. That's exactly what he just said. And you might be thinking, you might be thinking, that, this sure seems awfully fast. And it is. And to be totally clear with you, Titus 3 is a different process than Matthew 18. You guys have heard of church discipline, right? From Matthew 18, right? The four-step process. Here's the difference between these two things. Matthew 18 is slow and steady, trying to restore that person to work with them. It could take months. It could take a year or more. You're just working, 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 working with the person, beckoning them to repent and, and, and trying to prevent the person, where, prevent the scenario where you have to announce their name to the congregation so that people can go try to evangelize them. That's a different process because it's slow and steady. This, not so slow. The shortest distance between two points is a what? Is a straight line. The shortest distance to being excommunicated is slander and gossip and division. That's the issue. And the reason why this process is so fast, the reason why it's so fast, get this now, is because slander and gossip and division is so harmful to the church that if the elders don't deal with it quickly and directly and in a real hurry, it has the potential to split the church and to sink it into oblivion. Question number three. Why does a divisive person need to be excommunicated? Why does a divisive person need to be excommunicated? Paul gives the answer in verse 11. Look what he says. He says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. Why? Because you know, you know that such a person, listen to his language. I didn't write it. I'm just, I'm just reading what it says. Such a person is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Those are unbelievable descriptions. <laughs> perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Meaning what? Well, you could say so much about each individual term, but if you squish them all together, what Paul is basically saying is this. This person is blind. They're just blind. They're, they're unteachable. They're caught in a web of self-deception, and everyone else can see it, but they can't. They can't see it. And they think they're right. 
They think they're right about this whole thing and they're gonna get what they want in the end, no matter the cost, because they either do not see or they do not care about the destruction they're causing because in the end, the only thing they actually really truly care about is themselves and their own private agenda and their sin and their pride has blinded them to the degree that they are a cancer in this church and for the good of the church, they must be lovingly removed from the body. It's not because we don't love them. It's the opposite of that. We do love them. And it's that we hold the church as so sacred that we won't even allow people that we love to bring it down in a ball of flames. Now, I don't know how you feel when pastors preach on this stuff. I always feel like, okay, is he going to call my name? Is he going to call me? There will be a process. The elders are always going to work through a process. We pray it never happens, but there will be a process and you will know, okay? So don't feel like we're out to get you. The elders are only, only, only here for your good. Only for your good. Which means sometimes we'll have to play hardball and we will trust the Lord to work in your life. And, and here's the issue. It's super easy, isn't it, to, to think about this and to think about people that we know who are kind of like this and we kind of sort of wish we could excommunicate them off the planet, Right? And, and But you see, the, the thing that makes verses 10 and 11 so, so terrifying is that the mold and the spores and the fungus and the bacteria of everything that Paul just described is in you. And it's in me. Do you feel that? We all have the fearful potential of being a divisive person. So what do we do? How do we not go down that road? How do we not tank this church with, with, with blinded eyes and, and, and gossipy hearts? How, how do we not go down that road? And Paul just told you, didn't he? He already told you in verses four through seven when he unfolded the gargantuan salvation riches we have in Christ. That's the answer. If you don't want to be divisive, look to Christ and treasure him and what he's accomplished. It changes everything. Because these salvation passages, they are everywhere, and I've got some in your notes. Isaiah 53, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 9 and 10. I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you, you read those and you meditate on those and you recite those a thousand times a day if you need to, and your life will begin to change. Why? Because listen very carefully. The only reason why slander and gossip and, and discontentment still exists in our lives is because we have not yet learned to feed. Feed moment by moment on the riches of salvation that we have in Christ. The more we become staggered by the Fort Knox worth of salvation gold that we have in Christ, the more unified and healthy and holy and happy this congregation will be. And I don't mean to imply that verses 12 through 15 don't matter, because they do. <laughs> and there's a lot of gold in there, believe it or not, and one of these days we'll get to it, but we'll have to wait for another time. But that's Paul's letter to Titus. We're done. It, it's the blueprints for a healthy church. 
And so may God grant us, may God grant us his grace to be a healthy church that changes the world always and only for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you love your church. You love your church far more than we do, Christ. You bought it with your blood. You paid for it with your death. And Lord, we, we don't take any pleasure in texts like this that talk about hard things. And yet, Lord, we, we are mature enough, I think we are, Lord, to, to look at the big picture and to see why you would put those kinds of things in place. It's Lord, because, Lord, we are sinful people and your church is precious and your reputation is really, really important. In fact, it's the biggest deal in the universe. And so, Lord, I, I just plead with you for our congregation that we would be we would be a, a humble and loving church that's willing to die to self, that's willing to die to preferences, that's willing to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us be a church that treasures the salvation realities we have in you. Oh, please grant us that. Give us eyes to see. Give us a spirit of grace and humility and love and compassion and a desire, O oh Lord, that we would, we would long to serve and care for one another, that we would be devoted to good works for one another. Please, Lord, grant us to be this kind of local, healthy church body that could function as a stage that displays your glory to the Fort Worth area, to Arlington, to Dallas, to Mansfield, the areas, O oh Lord, around us. All we want to do is make an impact. All we want to do is make a splash, Lord, and it's going to be you who does it. So we look to you and we ask for it in your mighty, matchless, and precious name. Amen.